You are listening to Authentic Falconer, a podcast that promotes falconry, conservationism, and collaborates with real authentic falconers. My name is Mike Bordenero, master falconer and co-owner of a bird abatement company called The Hawk Pros. I'm sitting down with falconers to discuss hunting and training techniques, lessons they have learned, and obstacles they have overcome through their falconry experiences. And of course, the always entertaining stories that come along with falconry. Welcome to the podcast. Today, uh, today's authentic falconer is Eric Ariyoshi, and I want to thank him for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, Eric is a specialist. He really likes to fly uh, peregrine falcons on ducks, and he's been a falconer for over 20 years. So I'm hoping to get some information for the person trying to jump into switching over to a falcon or you know just starting out on a falcon. So we're going to s- discuss his... Um, transitions, um, the differences, and then also a couple uh, common difficulties that most people have to overcome and kind of like some tips how to correct them. So I'm really excited that uh, Eric's here to, to help us out with that. And uh, I definitely want to start with uh, your journey into how you got into falconry. So could you tell us about, you know, the very beginning, what got you into falconry? Yeah, sure. I think <laughs> it's like a lot of falconers. I think, you know, as a kid, I was really into the outdoors and nature and bugs and snakes and frogs and all that sort of thing. And I was fortunate enough to live next to a large regional park where I could every day, you know, when I was little, just run around. It's a different time. Your parents would just let you out and take you home for That's dinner nice. time. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and then when I got bigger, you know, they, I always had that park just literally next door to my home. So I spent a lot of time in the outdoors playing, collecting animals and made the normal progression. I think a lot of falconers go through this process where when they're really little, they're into insects and bugs, and then that kind of evolves into, like, frogs and amphibians, and then often that goes to reptiles and, you know, like snakes and lizards. And then at some point I progressed to where I was, I started noticing these these, these red-tailed hawks and these kestrels and these, these large birds kind of flying up in the sky, and I started noticing these nests in the trees. So I started becoming really intrigued. And then I saw a uh, National Geographic magazine article about falconry. And it actually, I, I, years later, I learned it, it actually featured a, a local, very well-known falconer named Gary Beeman, who actually lived in the Bay Area. And these pictures just completely captured me and you know made my mind go, wow, I can't believe people do this. So that kind of evolved. And then when I was about uh, 11 or 12, I basically nagged my parents to the point where they helped me there's a different time back then. You couldn't uh, go on the internet and say falconry. What is this? You know, yeah. it's completely different. There was so little information, and so uh, they helped me write some letters. Uh, I wrote a letter to uh, the California Department of Fish and Game, and they sent me back basically a packet that basically said, "Well, falconry is legal, and these are the steps you have to do." And in that packet, there were some contacts um, for, um, for 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 the uh, for getting involved if you want to get involved in it. So okay. I wrote some, uh, typed some letters, literally my, my mom helped me type some letters and, and got some contacts and eventually got uh, hooked up with some local falconers who were um, nice enough to take me out as a kid. And it was a very different process, a lot harder to get into and find information about what the sport was. But um, I think it was a, outside of the technology, it was a pretty normal process a lot of falconers go through. 
Okay. So was it a, um, a meet you went to, to meet your sponsor or a group or you just kind of, no, they, uh, there were, I, I sent away some letters with like, you know, a stamp and everything. Oh really? Yeah. And, uh, and there was a gentleman, Craig Culver, who at that time was involved in AFA who sent me back and he said, Hey, here, here are three buddies I've got in the Bay area that are pretty close to you. Oh, Why okay. don't you give them a call? And I made some phone calls. And uh, I eventually was connected to one of the nicest guys I've ever known in the sport named Ed Ang. Uh, he lived in the local area, and he would uh, take me out. You know, obviously, I couldn't drive at that point. So, yeah. you know, my dad or mom would drive out and drive to some random area, and he would let me watch his goshawk and his falcons fly. So that's how it started. Nice. And what, um, what was the first bird that you actually trained? Uh, I started with kestrels, and the, the reason was uh, prior to actually getting licensed, I, I had done a lot of rehab work, kind of volunteer work, and mm -hmm. I always knew I wanted to fly falcons. Um, I've done, believe it or not, people who know me will probably be shocked. I actually have trained hawks, but uh -huh. the, the vast majority of my falconry experience has been around falcons, and I knew I wanted to train falcons. I knew I wanted to move on to merlins immediately, so I, I flew okay. kestrels to start. So what was the, what was it that you knew? Why would you gravitate towards a falcon versus a hawk? Like what was the, in your mind? I think I was a little different in that before I actually started flying, you know, back then, you know, the age now, the age requirements now are much less. When I started, you had to be 16 to oh, get a license. So, yeah. uh, so I had a lot of years going out and watching other falconers fly. So before I even considered getting a bird for myself, I'd watched know, Harris hawks fly and red tails and goshawks and peregrines and prairies. And I'd seen a wide variety of birds fly. So I kind of already knew what, uh, what appealed to me the most kind of aesthetically. Okay. Yeah. It's like the, uh, the, the teardrop falling from the sky, smashing yeah. a duck or yeah, something yeah. like I that. Did, as I, opposed yeah, to I, <laughs> yeah, I did my, my childhood was, um, you know, um, probably a little different because a lot of people don't realize you know, California in the in the United States was where kind of duck hawking was founded and really established. Oh, and uh, so I was lucky enough that I went out with a lot of really good long wingers. You didn't mind a little kid tagging along to see you know some really good duck flights and pheasant mm -hmm. flights as well. Back then, pheasants were doing really well in the state. Unfortunately, they're they're all gone. But but um, yeah. So yeah. So I, I was fortunate enough to 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 see how it's done. The um, when I was at a pretty young age. Okay. I've done more dirt hawking, <laughs> you know, in my experience. And I've only gone on with, gone out with a few, um, you know, peregrine uh, falconers. And I have not, I have yet to see an awesome duck smash, like close enough where you can actually <laughs> kind of feel it in your heart. So how often does that happen? And do you remember like, I, your I, first experience. Yeah, right? I, I definitely do. I definitely remember seeing some amazing flights. And um, the thing about um, long wings is I think people think it's, it's this extremely difficult thing. And it's, and it's not. It's, 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 it, the, the fundamental process is the same. Um, it's, it's just different. How you, how you train them is different. I think in terms of success, though, it, ironically, when, it, when a falcon, when a you know, when, when a falcon really becomes, you know, a game hawk, a, a proven made bird, um, especially on ducks, they can pretty much become automatic. You know, a lot mm -hmm. of people will say, um, who've done duck hawking for many years, say, well, I love duck hawking, but to be honest, when a bird really figures it out, it becomes too easy. 
Um, and that's why a lot of um, falconers will kind of go out on this journey to, to chase more difficult quarries like grouse. Gotcha. Yeah. I've talked to a couple of falconers and that's like their ultimate goal is to go grouse hawking yeah. in Idaho of all places where I live, yeah. which is kind of cool. Um, so your sponsor, um, growing up, you were a little bit younger, about 16. Was there something um, that he told you that sticks with you still to this day that you would want to share with people getting into the sport? No, he, it was interesting. I think the sponsors, they fall into two camps. There, There's the kind that really are prescriptive and tell you do A and B and C. And, and, and uh, it's a very, um, you know, they're, 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 they're trying to help you succeed. Uh, but my sponsor actually, um, it actually wasn't Ed who took me out, but he passed me on to or referred me on to Sterling Bennell, who was one of the first uh, founding falconers. The, he was of the generation that really founded uh, uh, game hawking and, and real, real, real game hawking in terms of hunting in the, in the United States in, in the 40s and 50s, along with people like a lot of people know Hans Peters is this amazing artist, but he was actually, he's also a mentor of mine was also this generation that you know in the 50s and 60s along with people like like lewis davis um really established a, a culture of actually hunting and being successful with their birds because people don't realize you know that that tradition in europe is very well founded or in other parts of the world in the middle east or in asia was unbroken in the united states you know falconry basically you know started you know back early in the century in the 20th century it was mainly pet people pet keepers. People weren't, weren't hunting with them. It wasn't really until, you know, people like I mentioned, Lewis Davis. Lewis Davis showed up at the, the NAFA meet in Reno in 1962 with a goshawk and a peregrine and, and killed stuff. Uh-huh. And a lot of people were like, oh my God, I didn't know you could actually do that. You know, so <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it was a different world back then. And, um, uh, and, and anyways, getting back to your question, my sponsor was more of kind of, he just said, hey, he left it up to me to how much, how motivated do you want to be? Okay. And, and, and I kind of showed him through my motivation, you know, asking to go out and asking to go out or asking to go out with his friends or other people. If I said, Hey, I'm interested in Merlins. Do you know anyone, you know, who's doing good with Merlins? He would, he was very helpful in, in helping me connect with those resources, but he was a little different because he didn't push me. You know, he never pushed okay. me or even challenged me. He kind of, he kind of left it up to me to, how I wanted to progress because he was very much a believer in that, you know, it's, it's, it's a journey, you know, he was, you know, he's very philosophical that way. And, uh, um, and, uh, unfortunately I I lost him a few years ago, but if you ask people who knew him, you'll hear some amazing stories, um, that, uh, because he is, he's quite a character. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. He's passed, but but no, he lived, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to lose him, but he lived one of the most full lives I think you can. So, yeah. you know, I think at the end, um, you know, people were just celebrating because he, he, he just, you know, I, I have a picture of him, a black and white picture with him and with, with Maverick Godado and uh, in the UK and black and white, you know, wow. from like the 40s. So, yeah. No way. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Very cool. Um, let me ask, uh, moving on to your current bird. Uh, what are you flying right now? So I'm flying a, uh, a passage peregrine um, that was trapped in Arizona a, a couple seasons ago, a, a falcon, a female. Okay. And was there a thought process to you wanted to go to Arizona for a specific one, or did you just 
happen. No, unfortunately, um, you know, not not to get into the weeds and into political subjects, but uh, even though we have more peregrines in California than probably any state in the country, it's not legal to trap passage birds here. So I had to go to another state to get that done. Ah, so yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, so how long have you um, flown uh, peregrines? Uh, you know, I've, I'd say, you know, there, there've been a couple other birds in there, but I've, I've really focused on them for the, uh, probably the last, close to the last 20 years. Like, um, you know, my, my experience actually goes back a little more than 20 years ago. <laughs> I don't oh, want yeah. to make me feel old, but <laughs> the uh, majority of the last 20 years I've, I've really focused on peregrines. Yeah. Okay. And normally they passage you? No, I, I've, I've kind of gone through kind of the, the whole, Variety, you know, I started with uh, chamber chamber raised parent okay. raised birds, um, and uh, I've I've never really had a preference for imprints, um, and there's nothing against imprints at all. It's just I think some people you know prefer imprints and some people don't. So I'm kind of in that group that doesn't. So I did uh, parent raised chamber birds for quite a bit, and then I flew some uh, wild hacked birds, um, some, uh, and then that really opened my eyes, and then. Um, and then I, uh, the last few years, have been doing passage birds. Okay. Yeah. When you were buying the chamber uh, race birds, was there a specific breed that you found you had the best results with? Um, I, you know, I, you know, obviously, uh, I focus on peregrines, but I, I prefer anatoms. Okay. Uh, anatom peregrines. There, you know, it's funny. Par- you know, th- you know, there are all these different subspecies, and you'll find it's like arguing about, you know, um, you know. Uh, Camaro versus Ford or something like that. You know, there's okay. no right answer. Sure. But, you know, you'll find people who uh, will, will argue to their grave why peels are better or why anatoms are better or why tundras are better, you know, so. Yeah. Um, but personally, I, I've always really enjoyed the anatoms, uh, both honestly because of the, the aesthetics, how they look, but also primarily the personality traits. They, they tend to be very... Um, uh, fairly friendly kind of okay. tame temperament, calm temperament. Yeah. And um, what would you say your most memorable duck hawking moment was? If it was your bird or was it someone else's? Oh, geez. I think it, uh, for duck hawking, um, it probably is my bird. And it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily um, the most amazing flight, but just kind of how it, how it how it developed um i was out hawking with my young daughter and she was you know she's just old enough to really keep up without me having to like constantly stress <laughs> out about where yeah. she was and, and we were out and uh, uh we were flying at the time we we're flying a wild hacked uh uh tearsel peels at uh, pete weidner really um uh, uh a breeder with a really good reputation um has he's really known for his, his hacked peels birds and makes mm-hmm. amazing birds and we were, we went to this pond, and this pond we'd flown many times. And of course, you know, my daughter was out with me, and of course, what does the bird do? But it checks off and you know chases something outside. It, you know, thankfully this is this is fairly recently, so it's in the days of GPS. So uh-huh. we kind of were watching the bird, you know, on my phone, kind of screw around, and we're like, oh. And then <laughs> and then it turned away and looked like it was just basically leaving the country. So I said, okay. So, uh, my daughter's name is Samantha Sam. So I said, Sam, we, we better go back to the truck and, and go pick him up. So we're, we're starting to walk back to the truck. And then, you know, just, you know, we're almost there. And I just peeked down at my phone and the, and the bird had basically done a U-turn. So this is one of the, the, the amazing things about GPS is that 
you know, you, you don't necessarily, you can give them more leash. You can give them more leeway to kind Absolutely. of. This is Mike with a quick message. Make sure to subscribe. You won't want to miss out on our upcoming interviews and also check out the full experience on our YouTube channel, Authentic Falconer. You won't regret it. And now back to the episode. Yeah. Do their things without stressing out about it. And I'm watching it and it's doing a straight line back. And so I, I go, oh, Sam, okay, we got to turn around. Let's go back. <laughs> and we're also okay. sat, we're also sadly at the stage where I think my, my, my young daughter is faster than me. So I, I realize that the bird's <laughs> going to be in position before I actually get back to the pond. So I basically oh. yell for my daughter. I say, Sam, run as fast as you can. And uh-huh. as soon as you get there, flush the ducks. So, so my, my daughter's just like turns on her little rockets and she's running up this hill to this pond and then, sure enough, she gets there, you know, just as um, uh, the peregrine's coming into the in, in, into position, and she flushes the ducks, and we saw a perfect vertical and, and, and killed the duck. So it was just a good day. And, yeah. um, and I think, the, the, again, it wasn't the most amazing, mind-blowing flight mm-hmm. ever. I can definitely think of some that were more amazing, but because it was with my daughter. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and that's yeah. a memory we both share. I think it means a lot. I hope you got a picture of you two that day. Yeah, I do. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, no, I that's do. great. Yeah. So when, uh, how did she flush him? Did she throw some rocks into the water? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, yeah, she oh, just cool. Did very, very basic. Nice. Yeah, yeah. And you don't use do- uh, dogs, do you? No, I don't. Dogs are great, um, but the where where I fly, that the ranchers can be a little uh, skittish about using them. Uh, so I, I, so I don't, but. I think I recommend anybody who does have the option to use them and the dogs are well-trained. They can only help you. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so <clears throat> we kind of already talked about your bird selection. You, ch- you normally like a passage yeah. and uh, don't plan on doing any imprints anytime soon. No. And, and I, I, I should, I should probably clarify that, 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 that comment too. I, I really think I have a, a good friend who is a, basically devoted most of his life to flying peregrines too. So mm-hmm. um, we've, we've all combined flown a lot of different peregrines. And I, I think a, a bird doesn't have to be a passage or an imprint or um, a hack bird or whatever to be great. Um, you, you'll get great peregrines out of, you know, no matter how you train them or no matter what their background is. I think it's just a matter of work. I've, I've come to the place in my, my, my life where I, I don't necessarily honestly enjoy the training that much. I enjoy the game hawking aspect of it. So yeah. for me, the priority is on um, getting a bird that's going to develop and progress really fast and having a really great first season and, and then second season. You know, I'm, I'm less interested in a bird that's going to take, you know, two, three, four years to develop. So my experience has been that Hack birds develop a little faster than chamber-raised birds, and passive okay. birds are pretty much already there when you get them. You just need to harness it. Um, so that's kind of um, the, the context. Uh, for the imprints, you know, I have some good friends who love imprints. They think I'm crazy. And it's really funny because I think people, te- again, people tend to gravitate to one or the other. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes they'll they'll have a chamber bird or, or a hack bird or something. They'll ask me, I can't get this bird going. And I'm like... and and I just kind of like chuckle because to me it's a lot more straightforward mm-hmm. than than imprints because it's it's just, it's just a very different process the entire process. So I think there are a lot of different ways to skin a cat, but for me imprints I, I don't necessarily 
to me, they're, they're, they're um, more time intensive. I think most people would agree with that. They're more time intensive in, in the raising process. Um, and for me, they're, they involve a, a longer development process than, say, say a passage. So that's the okay. main reason I have that preference. Uh, I have heard, and I believe it was, um, I believe it was something you said um, through, you know, another falconer. But um, obviously, some birds have talents, and others yeah. are just not that capable. Yeah. And if you trap a wild bird, yeah. and you decide at this point it's just not cutting it where it should be, or what your standards are, um, you're just not having as much progress with it um you cut it loose and get another one is there a, um first of all is that is that correct is that yeah that pro- uh, I, I probably did say something okay. like that I, it, I think yeah. it's it's become like uh, a cliche to say it's always the falconer's prop if the bird's not performing it's always the falconer it's never the bird's fault it's never the falconer's and i i think that's just it, it's it's almost like a pc statement it's mm-hmm. it's become oh that's the only statement you can say and i honestly i, I think it's a little bit of bull I think birds are individuals, and uh, and you tr- when you trap them out of the wild, for example, there's a wide range of talent. Um, and yeah, you know, if you put in extra work, you you can draw more out of that. But then the sure. question is, okay, how much is it worth it? You can take, you know, there's some falconers who kind of they specialize, they enjoy they enjoy the process of taking birds that maybe are have had issues or or mm-hmm. uh, you know aren't perfect and kind of fixing them. Um, and, and that's fine, you know. That's fine as long as, long as they enjoy that. But yeah. sometimes I see falconers who they don't enjoy that, and I, I think you know it, it's it's a little silly. It's like you're basically um, subjecting yourself to pain you don't have to have. If you if you if you have a passage bird and it doesn't look like not all passage birds, you know, are going to be um, inclined to you know to be good falconry birds. There's some species that as a whole are really inclined. You know, merlins are a good example. You know, passage merlins, you know, I have yet to see one that didn't tame down and kind of enjoy being, a, you know, not to anthropomorphize, but, sure, you know, yeah. they, they do really well in an environment, uh, a falconry environment, where they very quickly recognize that you're not a risk to them. They very quickly recognize the value of your flushing, and they just thrive in that environment. So I, I think sometimes people have birds and they're they're just not they're not you know they're just not great for it and and instead of just you know letting them go you, you trap a passage bird that you're banging your head for a couple of days or even a couple of weeks you know there's no reason you can't just like let it go and fatten mm-hmm. it up make sure it's healthy let it go yeah. and get another one um, yeah yeah I feel like some people like you said would think that it is always the falconer's fault and I. D- firmly disagree with that because there's birds at different yeah. levels and stages so yeah yeah all birds are individuals yeah. you know that's that's the one thing I you know I I, I found that you know myself I think you, you, when you're really young and you're starting out in the sport you realize you don't know anything and then <laughs> then, then you go through this this kind of middle stage where you have enough experience to really be confident in your abilities and then uh-huh. you start to think oh god I know what I'm doing you know and then I think when you get further on you get even more experience and you see even more birds and you realize you realize that birds are individuals you know it's really dangerous to put hard and fast rules in place uh and that you really don't know as much as you think because you start because you you start to see exceptions to these rules that you've developed in your head Mm -hmm. um so i so i think i think it's a it's a process a lot a lot of falconers go through but um 
you know, I, you know, I, I tell people all the time, you know, the more this more just specifically around, just think about just peregrines. It's one species, you know, uh, there's a lot, tons of subspecies, obviously, and there are tons of different ways to train them and so forth. But that's just one small branch of falconry. Yeah. And even that, you know, what I can say is, you know, the more I see, the more, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know, I, um, you know, I, I, fl- I've flown, you know, a few of them, but I, there definitely are exceptions to a lot of the stuff that I've seen. Yeah. I think you set up perfectly yeah. because uh, in a lot of aspects of not just falconry, but once you are in that middle stage and you feel comfortable, like you said, you think, you know, enough. Yeah. And then that's when you start making mistakes. Yeah. Um, cause you, you think, you know, it all. Yeah. But yeah. It's good to keep that open process. Um, so I'd like to ask someone who's just getting into training, uh, a peregrine, let's say a passage, since that's what you prefer right now. Uh, could you break down the training stages just briefly how you would start off with a, yeah, I, I can, and, I, and I'll just qualify it in, in terms of, there are a lot of different ways to skin a cat. So, so this mm-hmm. is just one way to do it. I'm, I'm sure there, there are many, many other ways to do it. And that, um, I, I think that that's another thing. Um, as Falcons mature, they recognize they're like, well, oftentimes people figure out this is what works for me, but I think you do need to recognize that people are in different situations. So it may not work for someone else's situation, or they may have a different way of doing it. That's perfectly fine. Yeah. Um, but the, the way I do it is basically founded on the, the, the philosophy that a passage bird already knows what it's doing. It already has all of the skills in place. So all it is, is bringing those out in a way um, that's fairly fast. I, you know, I do believe not, not to rush, but I believe not only passage birds, but I think just falconry training in general. Um, I think the number one thing that prevents birds from becoming good game hawks uh, that are successful in wild game is overtraining. So, so I think those two things kind of form the foundation of how I look at it. I try very hard. Number one, I believe that a passage bird already has, it may not have the hunting skills of a haggard, but it really, it's, it's out there. It's catching stuff. It basically knows what it's doing. Its flight skills are developed. It knows what it's like to feel hungry. Um, and, and, and it's motivated to hunt and, and kill successfully. Um, and then again, I combine that with the observation that I would say, geez, ninety percent of the birds that kind of don't reach their full potential are overtrained. Um, so, so because of that, that that's the process. So, honestly, you know, ballpark process. You know, again, every bird's an individual, but roughly, you know, I, I try to get the bird hunting. I'd say about a month, maximum, and and mm-hmm. it's basically if you just break it down to the basic steps that everyone's familiar with, you know, the manning stage during the manning stage, I, um, the way I do it, I do not adhere to the, the waking, if you will, where it's just forced exposure to the bird. I very much believe you're going to get faster, better results if every interaction is positive. Mm-hmm. So when, when you have a fresh trap bird, for example, if the bird doesn't want to eat and is baiting, I plop the hood on and, put it away and come back later and try again later. So, okay. so that, that's the first thing I think is mm-hmm. to, to make all the interactions during the manning stage positive. Um, maybe, it, maybe it's obvious, but unfortunately I think in today's, today's age, it's not, I, I, I do believe hooding is a, one of the critical foundational skills. Uh, 
falconry, no matter what type of bird you're flying. So um, for falconers getting into it, I, that's something I would emphasize. It's like never underestimate the importance of number one, a good fitting hood. And a lot of people will say, oh, that hood looks okay. It's like, no, if the hood bothers the bird at all, you need another hood. Mm-hmm. I understand that's a pain. It costs money. It costs time. But over yeah. the long run, you need a, a proper fitting hood, and you also need to know how to put it on. So that's the man, the manning stage. Typically, you know, it, 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 it should not take that long. The, the next stage is obviously, you know, th- you know doing. Uh, one thing I will say about falcons, a very small detail, but um, it, it can potentially save you a day or two. There's no real reason to actually hop the, the falcon to your fist. Okay. Uh, because that, that comes along, that develops naturally. There's oh, really okay. no reason. So really all you need to do is just basically gain it uh, eating bare hooded. And then you can go straight to, um, you know, sh- short flights. Um, on the crayons, I, I do use a crayons. I mm-hmm. think the crayons, I, I, I've referred to it as the tool of the devil because it can result, no matter how well you plan, things can uh, go wrong. So yeah. um, to be honest, I do not, I minimize it completely. I don't um, also have them come long distances. Uh, during fr- uh, going to free flight, achieving free flight, you know, that's probably you know, one to two weeks at, at the most, ideally more like one week. And I emphasize, and, and this is just basic falconry. This isn't anything special sure. about me. It's, yeah. it's, it's all about emphasizing response, not distance. Mm-hmm. And I think people, especially younger falconers, get hung up in distance. They think, well, the bird, what happens if it's further? And no, it's, it's, a, it's about response, distance. As soon as the bird is coming, you know, uh, you know, 15, 20 yards to me, probably even shorter, to be honest, maybe, you know, you know, 10 yards or so, I get rid of the crayons. So the crayons ideally is only on the bird for a handful of flights, Mm -hmm. not, not a long time. And then once you're from, so at this point, the bird is basically free flying and uh, peregrines specifically are inclined to wait on. So people oftentimes freak out because the bird flies past you when it's first starting to free fly. And that's perfectly yeah. normal. It's going, to, it's going to turn if for no other reason than to say, hey, what's going on over there? And then you just simply start a process of rewarding the bird uh, with um, a, a lure or a game or so forth. So, so once the bird's free flying, you can very easily go from uh, one circle above your head at 20 feet to 300 feet you know, and say, you know, four or five circles in, in a matter of two or three flights. Oh, you know, so so, so it, it happens once once it clicks in the bird's head that, hey, I'm going to look at that guy and something good is going to happen. Mm-hmm. It, it develops very fast. Um, and then, honestly, this is where the stage where I think a lot of falconers fall apart is they think they just need to keep training them. And things come into place like either, um, you know, launching – you know, you know, farm raised game, or um, or the drone. Um, the drone, to be honest, I think the drone is an amazing tool that c- can be used by by people who understand both its strengths and weaknesses. But I've seen more falcons ruined on the drone than any other single factor. Oh. Um, so that stage when the bird the bird at this point is waiting on you know not high you know a couple hundred feet, uh, I I go to wild game. Okay. And I found it, le- and, and both not just with passage birds, but with passage birds and wild hack birds and chamber birds, they will typically kill within their first, I'd say, uh, two to five flights. 
Okay. So do you have bags every time in the very beginning to try and reinforce the positive if you don't have anything to flush? Um, or early on, um, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yeah, because early on, I'm not, I'm not putting, I'm not in an environment where there's wild game. So okay. I, have so, I have something to reward them, even if that's as basic as throwing a frozen duck out. Oh, okay. So, so, so yeah. All right. So the um, the manning process, you said, how long? Like one, two weeks? Yeah. At it, most. Yeah, I, I'd say I, I try not to break it down into steps that discreet. I, I think oh, okay. the whole process, I think, is roughly a month. Roughly, a if it, if okay. it's if it's it can be a week or t- or even two um, shorter, it can be a week or two longer, but roughly because again, you know, birds are individuals and sometimes they get hung up on one stage more than others. But I think the big thing to remember is to get your bird game hawking as fast as you can. Now, uh, what I will say in here that that is a specifically for what we're talking about peregrines yeah. is. Um, I don't fly tundra birds. So okay. uh, so I'm speaking on this not from my personal experience, but just from what friends and acquaintances have said, is that uh, tundra birds do have a stronger dispersal, um, oh. uh, kind of hardwired into them. They uh-huh. have a, um, that, that dispersal. So so they, they do tend to kind of go walk about, if you will, earlier. So, so yeah. typically, I, I know my friends who fly those birds have, have a little bit of a tighter leash so they, they, they may possibly go a little slower but um, but um, but I have I, but I, I haven't found that issue but again like that I'm, I'm speaking in an area where I'm okay. not really qualified yeah. to speak well that's okay yeah it's good to have yeah. advice from people that have experience um, so when you're um, out with your new peregrine and it's going up and it has one of those moments where it you know wants to check out something obviously now that we have GPS, we can kind of monitor that. Mm-hmm. But um, before that, what would you do? Like if, you know, your bird started getting out of sight and you have binoculars and would you, obviously you get a little bit worried, but what was your process of retrieval yeah. if something, you know, if you couldn't see the bird? Yeah, I, I think there, there, there are two important things that they consider in that situation. So, so the first one is where, where is the bird in kind of its development stage? So, so bird that is made, if you will, that knows what it's going supposed to do. You know, obviously, you're you're going to give the bird more a leash than a bird that is on its you know second or third free flight. Yeah. You know, a second third free flight. You know, you're going to be concerned and, and and rightly try to get control of that situation pretty fast. Um, it, it does go back to where the falconer can help in that though is, um. um I apologize. Selection of their slips. Oh yeah. You know, selection of their mm-hmm. slips. You know, I I I, re- I really emphasize that uh, people um, when when you're training a uh, you know um, long wingers especially they refer to brown birds birds in, in their passengers. When you're training a brown bird, uh, I found that the the best way to kind of guarantee a smooth development process for that bird is to be very very selective in, in their slips early on. So when I first put a bird up over wild game, it's a very clean, easy slip. And then I, as they get more developed, as they get more skilled, then you increase that to harder slips, and then they're, they're, you challenge them more. But it, it's, it's on the fa- if a falconer basically has only the s- slips where you know, there's check everywhere and they, and they don't have easy slips, you know, that's not good. That's poor planning on the falconer before they even get the bird. You know, they, they, they have to have those, they have to have enough slips where you can do that, where you can be selective in 
about, okay, I'm going to start this bird on easy controlled slips, wide open situation. There's pretty much probably only what I want to flush there. There's not a lot of check in the, in the vicinity and so forth. So, so I, I think those, those things come into play. So to get back to answer your question, what do I do when they, they go around, um, it, it fly off? It depends on where they are. Can I trust this bird or can I not trust this bird at all? Because it's basically not fairly trained. Um, but you, there is a balance because one of the things, especially for falconers who are new to long wings, that I guarantee it's, it's, it's almost every new long winger I've seen is um, there's a tendency to exert too much control. Yeah. And, and, and there, there, there's a saying among long wingers, which is basically like, let your bird fly. And, and, and it's exactly what, what it means. It's like you have to let your bird fly. You have to let your bird kind of spread its wings, eat some sky. And it's mm -hmm. not all going to be right above you like you want it. So sometimes they're going to fly out to the horizon and turn around and come back. You know, sometimes they may even get distracted by check. They may see a starling flock or a blackbird flock and get distracted by that. But you need to let them fly. If your impulse is to, as soon as things get a little out of control, call your bird down, you're not going to have a good day. That's good, great advice, yeah. Because that's initially, you worry, you don't want your bird to fly exactly. off. So exactly. kind of just let them figure it out. Um, <clears throat> so you mentioned the, the most, probably the most, um, difficulty people have is they overtrain. Is there a certain aspect where you've just seen, you know, birds get ruined over some certain technique that they keep instilling or just, just common mistakes as far as. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I think, you know, there are a couple things there. One is, um, you know, there's a, with para, I'm just going to speak to peregrines mm -hmm. right now because it, it's very different for other types of falcons. But for peregrines or something, what, what I refer to is the basic program. And the basic program is, you know, we walk out to the field with the bird hooded. I take that hood off and that bird knows it's, go, it's supposed, it's going to, it needs to ring up above me. So mm -hmm. it needs to fly up, take a pitch above me. And then it also knows when it's at an appropriate height, I'm going to go in and produce flush for it and it's going to get a clean shot at game so the bird has to go up it has to come over and it has to come down and 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 kill kill the game so the three steps basic as it gets mm -hmm. and and when people get a way to kind of just instilling that very very basic process i think they get off track if a bird doesn't know that so if a bird thinks its job is to when it gets released to look at the drone up in the sky and just chase the drone and get that. And that becomes its purpose, its primary oh, okay. drive. It's mm -hmm. a problem. So that's an example, for example, where, where if a bird is kept on the drone too long, that becomes its purpose, not I going see. up and coming up over you. If a bird is just simply trained too long to where it doesn't see wild game, it basically thinks, well, I'm going to, the hood's going to come off. I'm going to fly around for a little and then uh, that monkey on the ground is going to throw a lure out, and I'm going to get my meal. That becomes its primary purpose. Yeah. So it, it, it's it, so so if I had one piece of advice, it's that you know get your bird hunting, and yeah. I think it's you know it's obviously we're talking about peregrines here, but that I think philosophy holds for other pretty much any species you're going to fly. Get your bird hunting, and hunting and and success on hunting is going to reinforce good behavior. Absolutely. Um, I know a lot of people will get hung up on how high their bird goes yeah. and they say, oh, I can't get them above a thousand. I can't get them yeah. above 2000 feet. Do you worry about that? I don't, but that's, that's just my personal preference, you mm -hmm. know, 
I, I tell people all the time, um, decide what makes you happy and do that. If you want your bird up out of sight, you know, 2,000 feet up, that's awesome. Do that. Yeah. If you don't care if, if your bird's killing from 150, 200 feet, do that. It's, it's, it's really, you know, it's, it, it, it's, um, it's, it's obviously kind of a peer pressure kind of thing that kind of <laughs> comes into play. Uh -huh. But, uh, you know, do what makes you happy. The one thing I will say is where, where I do firmly believe is I believe in hunting success before pitch. Um, there are there are falconers who will very much disagree with that. Who think the critical the critical step is to get your bird high before you even start hunting? I, I don't agree with that. Mm -hmm. So so there there is I think a break. There are different schools to that. Um, my my priority is always to get the bird up to enough pitch where it can kill successfully. And honestly, the the first um, six to twelve head, I honestly don't care how high it is. Okay. Um, once I get to that process where, I, okay, the bird's killing, then I do care. Because mm -hmm. I personally, I, I, I like my birds, you know, between. And it also comes it also comes into play where you're flying. There are parts of the country where you can't have a high-flying bird just because of the terrain and the setup. Mm -hmm. you can, I don't care what you do. If you do, it's not going to catch anything. Okay. So, um, and there are parts of the country where uh, both the, the weather conditions and the, and, and the terrain really encourage a high-flying bird. Um, so those those come into play as well. But I always try to get the bird high enough to kill. I get it having success. I pay. I really try to get them up to that, you know, anywhere from 6 to 12 head very quickly. And then from there, I start imposing discipline. And, um, and I try to get my birds up. Typically, what, what I shoot for is kind of like 500 to 1,500 feet. I think at okay. 500 feet, you can have a nice proper vertical stoop. Um, mm -hmm. but, but you don't have to have wide open country to do it. Um, once you start talking about, you know, you know, you know, a thousand, 1500 feet, there are a lot of slips you're not going to be able to fly because there just isn't enough space for the game to clear. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, um, how do you get your bird to go up higher? Do you just wait a little bit longer for yeah. <laughs> like, is it a little bit more patience before you, it's, it's, you flash? It, yeah, it's patience and luck and positive reinforcement. Okay. So, so it all it all comes into play. The luck comes into play in, in terms of, you know, you don't have outside influences come into play. Like you don't have wild peregrines yes. or you don't, yeah. have, you don't have the birds going off on check. Um, and some birds are just high flyers. You know, one of the things, you know, with peregrines that anyone who's flown peregrines know is tearsoles naturally fly higher than falcons. So, um, so some birds are just going, and, and then within each one, you know, some individuals are just going to have a tendency to fly big and some aren't. Okay. So, so there, there, there's just that individual component that honestly is independent of the falconer, but then where the falconer, it is, it boils down to discipline. So, so I'll, I'll just give you an example. I have a, a, a very good friend, um, a falconer, uh, well-known falconer in the community, Sean Hayes, probably one of the most disciplined falconers I know, um, very, he's been successful with pretty much everything he's trained. And I was out hawking with him once in a meet, and uh, and, and it, he wasn't flying a peregrine. He, he's flying a GP, but the same principle applies. Okay. Uh, we, we had a great slip, uh, went out, walked out. He, he unhoods his bird. Bird takes off, takes a pitch, flying up, flying up, flying up. It got up to just about, I, th I think, like 900 feet, which mm -hmm. for most falconers is, you know, you know, you know, 99 out of 100 falconers is going to be happy with that pitch. Mm -hmm. And he basically looks up, swears to himself, 
throws out a lure and calls his bird down. Because for him, he wanted his birds higher. Oh. Like he, he wanted his birds up, you know, 1,000, 1,200 feet. And that was a bird that, I, that had a history going up, so he knew he could do it, okay. 1,000, 1,200 feet. But he wasn't happy, so he called that bird down. And uh, for him, that it was important to preserve that, that standard, if you will. Gotcha. Okay. Personally, I would have flushed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't need that. But then again, again, it, it comes down to individual preferences. But I'm not going to flush if the bird is, you know, you know, 100 or 150 feet up. You know, I'm, I'm mm. going to want that bird, like I said. I mean, what I shoot for is, you know, 500 to 1,200. But do I sometimes flush lower? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so it, it but you need to maintain that discipline if you want a high flying bird. And sometimes it's very hard because you wake up, you know, you get up at 430 or five in the morning, you know, you drive out, it's dark, it's cold, you're kind of grumpy. And, uh-huh. and then you get a great slip and you put your bird up and it, the bird doesn't go up the way you'd like. And then you have a question. It's like, do I flush or do I don't? Yeah. You know, if you if you if the bird isn't where you want it to be and you do flush, don't blame that bird for not going up. Because you're reinforcing that behavior. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Um, now you said it was very important um, for slip selection for someone just starting in duck hawking. Um, what's an ideal spot where you would start at to, you know, find a good spot to flush for their first yeah, intro- I, introduction? Yeah, I, I guess in in terms of duck slips, the, you know, the dynamics are pr- pretty straightforward. You know, generally the smaller the water, the easier it's going to be. Okay, so that's the first thing. Um, the, the second thing is you don't, you're not early on, you're not going to want a, a slip where there's a lot of check. So, you know, you want to avoid places where it's going to be distracted or tempted. So if there's okay. pigeons at a barn right next to there, you know, that's probably not great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the third thing is, you know, the species of ducks, you know, you know, some ducks are easier to, to catch than others. What, once a, a, a duck hawk is made, it really doesn't matter what duck it is, but especially early on, you know, like small divers are going to be easier than a mallard. Okay. Yeah. Oh, good. That's good stuff. Um, so are there any, I know some falconers have strict parameters, like that they just won't break, like, you know, whether it's the time of day or the weight or the, the temperature even, or, you know, the place location, if you change one or two or more of those, they just say it's not going to be effective. Do you have uh, any strict rules like that? I wouldn't say the strict rules, but they're definitely guidelines. I think okay. definitely um, falcons tend to be more sensitive than hawks at time of day. So um, I always fly, and a lot of falconers are like this, either fly at first light or right before dark. Okay. Uh, the, the hunting drive is definitely the strongest at those, those points in the day. And not only the hunting drive, but the air quality, especially in the morning, is, is usually the best. Um, okay. You know, people, um, I think, uh, dirt hawkers probably don't think about things like air quality so much. You know, that's yeah. something like long wingers do a lot of thinking about. They think about, okay, you know, you know how, how dry is the air? You know, how de- what's the air density like? Because the denser the air, the easier it is for them to go up. Mm-hmm. So there, there are parts of the country even in parts of the day where, you know, the birds can go up. You know, later in the day, the air typically, it typically warms up. It's not mm-hmm. as good air, and the birds often don't go as high. So... That's why long wingers often want that light right at first light. Okay. Um, so definitely time of day is a, is a pretty big consideration. You know, I'd say, you know, almost, not all, but most falcons fly, uh, who fly big long wings fly either uh, first thing in the morning or, or right before dark. Um, and in terms of pl- 
place, changing place and like that. You know, what I encourage is just understand if you're going to fly in the same place at the same time every day when you take that bird to a strange place at a different time, it's probably not going to be as smooth. Yeah. So there's a balancing act you have to play. Um, and I, I think uh, what, I, what I do is I, I tend to, for very, when they're very early on, I will train them in one field until they're basically going up high enough to, uh, to kill. Then I will probably put them on the same two or three ponds that are, are quite easy mm-hmm. and, and let them kind of get, get going in terms of having success hunting. And then I start to vary it. Uh, to be honest, I try not to vary the time. I don't fly my birds in the middle of the afternoon. The, the, okay. one, the one exception is if I'm training a bird specifically to thermal. Mm-hmm. Thermaling is, is a technique um, where you're taking advantage of those natural thermals. That, that, you know, we call it the elevator because it's kind of the lazy way to go up. Mm-hmm. They can take the, uh, a thermal bird can take an elevator and be up out of sight in minutes. Um, unless I'm thermaling, I, I typically stick to their early and late windows. But I definitely... Um, encourage gradually um, exposing your bird to different different locations so that okay you know, because you know yeah. nobody wants to go on a thousand mile road trip no <laughs> and, and, f- and ha- let their bird go and have it land on a fence post uh-huh yeah. uh what's the farthest you've had to track down one of your <laughs> birds <laughs> um i don't know if it's far Distance-wise, I, I, I think the farthest, I, trust me, I have lots of friends that have tracked birds way further. I have friends who've gotten in planes and tracked them across states. Yikes. But uh, for, for me, I've, I've been a little more fortunate. I, I think the farthest I recovered a bird was about 25 miles in a straight line, but it was literally on top of a forested mountain, so it, oh. wasn't, it wasn't much fun. I actually had to, I actually located it, and uh, it couldn't see me, though, so I had to wait a couple of days until it flew out in the valley, and then I got, got her back. But um, Wow. But, but yeah, but... Um, but especially with the technology available today, those, those things are become more and more rare, mm-hmm. uh, thankfully. Like GPS has really made recovery a lot easier. Definitely. 25 miles, that's nothing. Yeah. That's pretty <laughs> impressive in itself. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so can you go through um, the difference? Well, you've already gone through your training routine. How about your hunting routine, like starting from the morning and what you do and then basically your your normal yeah i i guess the, you know there's no i don't think there's anything super complicated about it i do you know tend to fly the birds for at first light mm-hmm. um so you know i um the the only thing i think is a consideration that some, some people don't um may not be at the top of their heads is where they are in terms of processing their food so oh. i i i feed them in a way so for example i, I feed them i always try to feed them in the morning so that the next day, their gut is pretty much empty, okay. because because a, a bird with a that that's gone through and processed all their food is going to be a little more motivated than a food where uh, a bird where it's it's only halfway through. So sometimes mm-hmm. it's hard. For example, switching and back switching back and forth between flying in the morning and flying in the evening, because if you fly in the say you have an afternoon flight and you feed the bird, a lot of times it's not going to be done processing that food. In the so that so that 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 that's the only consideration. But you know, I I go and pick them up, go out to the pond, and again, this is why hooding is so important. You know, the, as soon as that hood pops up, the bird knows what it's supposed to do. Okay, very cool. Um, so, when you have a um, falcon, are you normally 
like if let's say you train a falcon and you just love it is there a certain time period where you're still going to release it and go trap another one or is it more of just a feel yeah i I think that's one of the cooler things about flying passage birds is is the option to kind of let them go uh you know my the current falcon i have um she, she has two seasons under her belt and my plan is probably to fly two to three more and then let her go Okay. Um, but that's you know completely falconer preference just you know, based off your feel yeah 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 okay that's very really cool what do you think um you've trained hawks before yeah but uh what's the main difference you think because obviously they have different tendencies yeah what do you think the difference is between a hawk and a falcon in training and um so so i'm going to qualify this because i've never flown acceptors so i'm okay. just going to all right to, to me honestly um the the people who who are highly successful with exhibitors can train anything because it's it's uh, it's such a it requires such detail and discipline that I think a lot of the 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 greatest most skilled falconers focus on exhibitors. But so I'm going to put that aside. So I'm I'm okay. not talking about exhibitors. I'm just you know talking about booties and so forth. I think um, I think the difference is when you start flying long wings, you, there there's more of an emphasis on uh, on the aesthetics of it than mm-hmm. the pitch. So, so when you start focusing on pitch, there, there's this fine balance between control and letting your bird kind of spread its wings, if you will. Uh, so that, 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 that's the big difference. And it becomes a little bit less about, um, you know, putting game in the bag than, than getting that flight. Okay. You know, a, lot, a lot of falcons, don't get me wrong, I love game hawking and I love, uh, you know, going home with, with a duck in the vest. But... Um, but a lot, a lot, a lot of long wingers will talk about, you know, the flight. It's like, you know, it's 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 about getting that great flight where the bird just, you know, you know, takes a pitch with conviction, you know, just gets up there, and you and you, you get to see this amazing teardrop, you know, wh- whether yeah. the bird closes the deal or not. Um, so there's a little more, I think, um, you know, I, I don't want to put words into, in you know, d- the dirt hawker crowds. Um, Mouths, but I, I think there's 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 a little more emphasis on on, on that the aesthetics of the flight. Yeah, versus I could just, see that just for putting, sure. Putting game in the bag, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so have you had specific challenges, whether it would be training or preventative care or injuries, stuff like that that pops up that really you just had to. You know, yeah, yeah. I think if you fly long, I mean, fa- falconry is not for the faint of heart, and uh, and sometimes you get lucky and you get a good stretch of you know you can get like 10 15 years where it just everything seems to go fairly smoothly but that mm-hmm. at, at some point if you fly long enough bad stuff is going to happen so i think it's just having the ability to get back up and um dust yourself off and even when you feel like crap and i've definitely had uh stuff like that happen for me the big things have been uh, fence strikes you know unfortunately i fly yeah. in a part of the country where fences are going to be there and uh it's it's just part of the risk you have and some falcons are really good at avoiding fences, and some aren't. I've had falcons that I, I've, I've literally retired because they they showed me that they cannot avoid the fences. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but fences can kill. I, I've been fortunate that I've never had a bird killed by a fence, but I've had um, multiple birds hit fences. So fences are a big one. Um, I think um, uh, you know just just you know things happen to your bird. You know predation obviously is something we always deal with. In some parts of the country, it's it's golden eagles. Uh, we we do have issues with eagles. I've had friends locally who've lost birds to eagles, but it's a bigger issue with red tails. Yeah, the, the red tails in this part of the country at a certain time of year can be really bad. So, th- and then in terms of 
medical issues. Uh, I've def- I've definitely had birds get sick. Um, so so I you know no matter how how proactive you are in taking care of your birds, at some point you're going to have birds get sick. So you need to understand how to recognize the you know the primary maladies and how to treat those. Yeah. And in, in terms of vet care, um, a lot of falconers understandably don't trust vets because they tend to manhandle them because they're not familiar with handling them in the, in the clinic. Um, what I would recommend is find a vet that understands raptor medicine and you trust handling enough uh, because uh, my experience has been do not wait. If you think that there's something serious going on, get your bird into a vet because literally you know, hours for a lot of raptor diseases can matter. I'm thinking specifically about things like Asper, for example. Yeah. Asper, the medicine has gotten a lot better, but it doesn't matter if you don't get them on it fast. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so do you, um, do you ever, do you have a different approach when you're introducing new game? Like if you're trying to introduce a new, <clears throat> let's say going from uh, ducks to grouse or something mm-hmm. like that. Is that a complete game changer? Are you? It, it, it's very almost? different. You know, I've done uh, that. That's one of the things I'm looking forward to doing more. I think over the next few years is, is um, I've got a, a, a few friends kind of out in the Intermountain region, so I'm planning on doing more uplands for sure. Mm-hmm. And they're harder. Yeah. <laughs> they're the, so um, they're harder. And um, but I I don't think I think the pro the, the thought process remains the same. Whereas mm-hmm. you know you're gonna want to introduce them. It's to easier slips early. Okay. Then you know you, I I don't think you're gonna. I mean, who knows? You could be lucky and you can have an amazing hawk, but you're probably the best plan. Probably isn't to put your bird right up over you know winter hardened grouse the first thing. Uh huh. You know. Yeah. So, I would imagine you like having a dog for. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. For uplands, you need a dog. Yeah. yeah for uplands, you need a dog. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, yeah. you're gonna be sitting there for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I got to ask one more training question because this always comes to mind. I have people um, that tell me stories when they have a problem with their falcon landing mm-hmm. constantly. So what would you tell that person? <laughs> First, don't beat yourself up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. What I'll say is anyone who says their falcons never land is a liar. So that's the first okay. thing I'll say. <laughs> Everybody has had falcons land, mm-hmm. and they land for a variety of reasons. And the thing about landing is – if it gets to be a pattern, the more it gets to be a pattern, the harder it is to fix. Yeah. So uh, the earlier earlier you get on it, the better. Um, it's all about just literally keeping your bird in the air. And even if it's baby steps, uh, if you know you've got a falcon that's prone to land, do not give it that extra leash where it's going to land. If you can tell, oh, that bird is looking at that tree or that bird is looking at that pole or it's just going to land on the ground, Know, get it down before it actually lands. Okay. Because the the that there there are many many different ways to um, address a bird that's landing. You know that you know some of the ones people are familiar with is you know kind of the you know you know tossing pigeons to to get them to, to keep them in there. That that's one that you know one of the old school ones that's been around forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are many. You know there's there's drones, there's balloons, there's there's all sorts of ways to to address it, but my my overarching advice would be don't let it become a pattern because if you let it become a pattern it's going to be a pain in the butt to break yeah so are you trying to avoid a bird like that 
obviously places and perches and stuff that's around. You just want to try and take it out somewhere where yeah. it is a lot more difficult for it to yeah, land. Yeah, yeah, you would. The, the other thing, I, I, I before I, I, I miss this thought, though, is landing can be driven by, there are a couple big factors that sometimes, uh, especially newer falconers, may not think about. It can be sickness. Oh, so yeah. so mm-hmm. the vet always thinks it's sickness. So it is, you need to, <laughs> you need to be balanced about it. But, you know, I, I've, you know, taking birds to the vet because I thought there was something going on. And of course they're always like, yes, the bird is sick. That's why the bird's landing. And that's not always true. Okay. So, but it is a possibility if a bird is, if a bird that never lands really suddenly starts landing, I would actually say, is there something wrong with this bird? Mm -hmm. So, so it can be a health issue. Um, The other thing that is, is, is very common is, is people fly later into the season breeding hormones start, start to kick in, and, uh, and and that's not an uncommon thing. You'll see especially female, uh, you'll see falcons, that, that not less so on the tearsals, but even tearsals will start to act goofy too. So you'll you'll see some odd behavior late in the season due, due to kind of breeding condition. Okay, that makes sense. Um, did, uh, did you have any falconry books that you would recommend to someone, an enthusiast about duck hawking? Well, it's it's actually not about duck hawking, but it's about peregrines. I think the 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 best book by far, at least in the modern era, I'll, I'll limit it to kind of the modern era, is uh, Game Hawk Field and More by Turner. I think it's 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 not a lengthy book. It's actually a very succinct book, but like every word in that book has meaning, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's principles. I think it's might be a, a book that's a little harder for um, for newer falconers to, to really appreciate as much but i think especially people who've been flying falcons for a long time um uh find find some amazing wisdom in there it's it's more about principles than how to yeah it's about principles in terms of how do you uh, make a great game hawk you know how do you uh what is the philosophy behind it and what are the principles to you know getting clean slips and achieving consistent healthy pitch and so forth so um that, that's the one book. It's not the easiest to get, I understand, but it's, it's well worth it if you're okay. serious about learning about um, really flying any falcon from a pitch. That's great. Um, who is your favorite falconer that you have? Oh, God. <laughs> there are a lot. There are, uh, you know, the, the, the thing about the Internet today is it makes you aware how many really good falconers there are out there, so it's amazing. And it's, it's also amazing because I think the biggest challenge now isn't it's not how it was when I when I was a kid. The big thing was getting access to good birds, and that's not an an issue now. Now it's it's easier than ever to get access to birds. Now it's about basically having the the right uh, slips and the land and the time to okay. do it. So, mm-hmm. but um, but getting back to your question, I, I'd say um, Hubert Quaid is someone who I, I really admire. He's um, okay. he doesn't do a lot of self promotion, but where is he located? Um, he's he's in Idaho. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he's he, but he. He kind of quietly goes about his thing, but he's he's probably to me one of the the greatest game hawkers, at least in the United States. Wow! Yeah, sounds like a very yeah guy. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> and and, and, and uh, yeah, nice. Um, so let's talk about if you could fly any bird, what would it be? Um, I think it's 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 kind of what I'm doing. It's 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 passage peregrines. I, I guess I might if I could fly anything, I would yeah. like to try a hag. I've heard some stories from the old timers about how those are but i think I'm, I'm very very happy with passage peregrines i guess there 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 are probably some 
some species, subspecies that aren't available in, in, in the U.S. That, that I'd be interested in trying. But, uh, but I'm very, very happy with you know, passage in autumn specifically. Okay. Yeah. That's good. Um, what is it that um, you kind of get out of Thawkering? When you're out there, what is your experience? It's, um, I think it's, it's, it's nothing unique. I, I think I'm out there. The reason a lot of falconers are out there, it's about um, doing something that you really get joy of in that moment. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it, it, it's when you're out there and don't get me wrong when things, things are not going well, you know, you know, unfortunately my daughter has been exposed to a lot of language. She shouldn't have been. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, you know, my friends will tell you, yeah, you want to hear um, some profanity, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm probably that guy when things aren't going good, but, uh-huh. um, but, uh, but I think it's about, you know, doing something you, you truly enjoy, gain joy in that moment, and you can enjoy it in the moment, you know, it's, it's, um, that, that's what it's always been for me. Okay, nice. Um, do you see Valkyrie taking you anywhere else? Other than Northern California, where you're at now, are you planning on <laughs> relocating? I, I'm a, yeah, I, I'm I'm a uh, I'm a Bay Area kid, so I'm, I'm, I'll probably always have a place here. But uh, but I am uh, spending more time kind of in, in grouse country and uh, doing yeah. doing uplands. So that that's probably um, you know when when I get older and and have um, more time too, I'll, I'll probably do more of that as well. Okay, awesome. Now, is there anything you can think off the top of your head, someone? Um, that would be just getting in would have any questions that we might have missed any topics before we wrap up um that's a good question i think i think the uh, the one specific piece of advice i would give someone getting in is don't rely on your sponsor for all of your learning and knowledge and information you know i think it's fine having that person be the primary because if you don't you have you know a billion different voices telling you a billion different things. So, so I understand that. But I think um, what I've seen from a lot of the amazing young great falconers come up is they're not just looking to their apprentice for learning. They're, they're looking at a broader set of people. So what I would say is seek out people who are doing things well and learn from them. And if you know, for example, you, you know, hey, I want to fly goshawks, you know, find some people who are really good at that and, and spend time from them. Because I think... I, I learned a lot of my falconry, honestly, not by people telling me what to do, but by just watching, yeah. you know, watching people who were already successful at it. So, so that's the piece of advice I'd give is, you know, find um, people who are not obviously not only good at it, but, but nice people and pleasant people to yeah. be around. Yeah, in, the old, in the old days, there were a lot f- fewer falconers, number one, and there was harder to get in touch with them. So people would tolerate a lot. I mean, there's a joke that, you know, people would, you know, basically get their apprentices to do all their manual labor at their house yeah. and things. You hear those <laughs> stories. Um, I, th- I think it's just, you know, that would be my advice. You know, f- look, really look around, find, find falconers who are doing things. They're successful at it. They yeah. clearly know what they're doing and, and learn from them. Don't, don't, don't just think like everything, you know, your, 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 your sponsor is the end all. Because to be honest, I've seen many, many people, a lot of the, the best falconers I know um, didn't have great sponsors. Yeah. A lot of them, you know, did mm. not have good sponsors. Uh, but what they did have was they had the drive to learn, the drive to get better, and the motivation to kind of seek out people who were very successful at what they wanted to learn and then learning from them. Yeah. This is a high-failure sport. 
especially in the beginning. You're failing constantly yeah. with little tiny things and learning from it. Yeah. I mean, nobody is just that good in the very beginning. Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely yeah. great advice. Um, I want to thank you for doing this podcast with me. And uh, I hope that you guys enjoyed the content. Um, please give a like and subscribe for more of these types of videos. And, uh, you know, if you want to watch Eric, he's on Instagram, Eric Ariyoshi. Um, you can check out his videos or well, his pictures <laughs> um, and uh, kind of his journey. But uh, I definitely enjoy Eric. I, I know he's very, very good at what he does. I've just I've heard a lot of good things about him. And I hope that I'll be able to go out with him one day and see, uh, you know, his bird catch a duck right yeah, in my absolutely. face. I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I yeah, appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks yeah. for having me. Awesome. Thanks for listening, guys. That does it for this podcast. If you want to hear more, we're on YouTube, we're on Facebook, and we're on Instagram. Just do that key search, Authentic Falconer, and tag us on any of your posts. We'd love to follow along on your experiences and your journeys. Buy some merchandise at AuthenticFalconer.com if you want to support the channel. And hopefully, we'll see you on the next one. Have a great day. Thank you.